might have noticed that Hannah Kirsten was sitting down up here. That's because she broke her foot this past week. So you can be praying for her, that her uh, recovery will be speedy, um, and that she'll be patient in the midst of suffering. Um, I shouldn't be laughing. All right. It's just a horrible thing. Like, you know, you're up front and, and your foot's no good. All right. Um, our second reading this morning comes from John's Gospel. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle story that appears in all four of the Gospels. You'll recall that John 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus' public ministry lasted three years. His entire mortal life was about 33 years. You would need a very large book to cover everything that Jesus said and did. And that's one of the reasons that the four gospel writers give us four different perspectives on the ministry of Jesus. That being said, however, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
thought that this story of the feeding of the 5,000 was worth telling. This morning, as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to talk about some of the themes that are common to all four versions of this story. These themes all have to do with the character of Jesus. But then I also want to bring special focus on verse 15, which raises an issue that none of the other gospel writers address. Verse 15 reads this way. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That verse is an unexpected coda to this familiar story, and it's going to be important that we get a hold of the meaning of that verse as well this morning. Okay, so let's begin with the themes that are common uh, among all four gospel accounts of this miracle. Let's look at what this miracle reveals about the character of Jesus Christ. Perhaps in the most obvious sense, this is a miracle of hospitality. Thousands of people descend upon Jesus and they're hungry. It's not as though Jesus had invited these people to his house for dinner. It's not as though Jesus was looking for company and had time to prepare uh, for the guests who did arrive. In Mark's telling of the story, Jesus was hoping, in fact, to be left alone. Mark 6, 31 and 32 says this, And Jesus said to the apostles, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Matthew tells us that this miracle happened on a desolate hillside near the shore of the Sea of Galilee because Jesus specifically wanted to go there to be alone by himself. Now, some of you who take a place down at the shore each summer, know what this is like. You imagine yourself getting away for some well-deserved rest and relaxation, but then your family and friends hear that you have a place at the shore, and they descend upon you like a swarm of locusts, and you spend your entire week cooking and cleaning for the people that show up at your door. Given the number of times in Scripture that we hear about Jesus going off by himself, it seems as though Jesus might have been an introvert. And yet it's part of his calling to be the focal point of a lot of crowds. People were always hungry for his attention. People were always wanting something from him. And so when this crowd, 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children, found Jesus on an isolated hillside far away from any city, there must have been some internal struggle and internal tug of war between his natural human inclinations for a little peace and quiet and his divine calling to be a shepherd to these sheep. What we see in all four accounts of this miracle is that rather than responding with irritation or resentment at being intruded upon, Jesus responds with hospitality. An hospitable person thinks of the comfort and the convenience of the people who've shown up at his door. 
Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd of people who had come to see him. Luke tells us that he welcomed them. A compassionate welcome. I think that's a pretty good definition of hospitality. Jesus was concerned about these people, about their needs, and he graciously sought to meet their needs, even though, in some sense, it wasn't his obligation. As Christians, we are called to hospitality. Now, there's a sequence in the priority of the needs of the people that Jesus meets. We see this in Luke chapter 9, where we read in verse 11, the crowds followed Jesus, he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing, and then only after that point does he feed them. So, first comes the kingdom of God, and second comes the healing of the bodies that are sick, and third comes providing their daily bread. Because if you are not right with God, if you are somehow still outside of his kingdom, if you are not bound for heaven, having a perfectly healthy body isn't going to do you much good in the long run. And if your body is broken down and diseased, having a full belly won't count for much either. But all of these needs, each in their proper sequence, Jesus does meet with compassionate, welcoming hospitality. And we as the church are called to imitate Christ in this way. Our first mission, of course, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. It might seem obvious, but no one is going to proclaim the kingdom of God if the church doesn't proclaim the kingdom of God. Nothing on this earth matters more than the eternal destinies of individual humans. And if we don't proclaim that good news, no one will. The secondary mission of the church is to heal broken bodies. Throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, the church has always been the first to establish hospitals and care for the sick. And a third mission of the church is to help those who are indigent meet their daily needs. It has always been that way since the very first generation of the church. We read in the Acts of the Apostles accounts of how the church systematically provided for the needs of widows and orphans. So the story of the feeding of the 5,000 reveals the compassionate, welcoming hospitality of Jesus which should be part of the DNA of every Christian and every Christian organization. But this story also reveals something about Jesus that you and I will never copy or imitate. That is, Jesus' supernatural mastery over physical reality. Let's be very clear about this. Jesus is God. And Jesus created the physical universe. Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. With five barley loaves, and these barley loaves are something like dinner rolls, with five barley loaves and two fish, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus the women and children, and there are 12 baskets of food left over. I don't know how he did this, 
But I also don't know how he created 10 billion galaxies, each of which has 100 billion stars in it. What I do know is that a God who can create a universe as complex and as vast as the one that we see around us can certainly cater a lunch for 5,000 unexpected guests. It is very important to understand that this is a story about a supernatural event. This is not a pre-scientific, superstitious account of some misunderstood natural phenomenon. There's nothing natural about feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Something strange happened. Exactly what? It's hard to understand. There were many witnesses to this event. Obviously the 5,000 and others. There are four published contemporaneous accounts of the events, the Gospels, and there are no contemporaneous published refutations of the Gospel accounts. There are no first century Snopes.com or factcheck.org exposés of this amazing event as some kind of hoax or some kind of mass hysteria. Sometimes I'm not so sure that we appreciate how other and how alien God is. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He does things in ways that we don't understand. He is beyond our capacity to comprehend. Oh yes, we get glimpses of him. We have little insights into him. But let's never pretend that we comprehend or understand God. And yet there are times when God directly interacts with this natural world and strange things happen. The laws of nature are interrupted. There are miracles that occur. Now, there is also, in addition to these extraordinary miracles, there is God's ongoing, constant engagement with this world, His unrelenting providential pressure, like a solar wind, that keeps pushing every event and every circumstance in this world toward the complete blessing and felicity of every saint. Charlene Crawford, give us your life verse. It's amazing, isn't it? All things. Why? Because God's pushing on them. Okay? There is evil in the world. There are people who do wrong things. God doesn't cause those. But God works on those things. God works with that material so that we will be blessed. So, while we are called to imitate the welcoming, compassionate hospitality of Jesus, we will never be called to imitate the supernatural, creative dynamism of Jesus. That's just who he is, and it's not who we are. Okay, those are two elements in this story that appear in all four of the gospel accounts. But I want to talk now about this theme that shows up just in John, and it doesn't appear in the other gospel accounts. Again, here's what we read. This is John 6, verse 15. Perceive, thank you, Charlene. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but you really did well. <laughs> Perceiving that they, that is the people in the crowd, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Well, this is a very interesting twist in the story. Jesus, of course, has come into this world proclaiming the kingdom of God. He begins his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because we know how the story unfolds, as the people in this story don't yet know. We know that Jesus is the king of kings and that he's the king of glory. But when these appreciative admirers of Jesus, these 5,000 people who flock to see, see him, when they come to fetch Jesus and to crown him as their king... He runs away. What's going on here? I think the short answer is, not all kings are the same, and not all kingdoms are created equal. The whole Gospel of John is keenly concerned with presenting or revealing the identity of Jesus. He is a king, we will eventually find out, but he's not the kind of king that these 5,000 well-fed admirers of Jesus have in mind. There is a real danger of us trying to make Jesus into who we want him or need him to be, rather than taking him on his own terms. These people who wanted to crown Jesus are fans of Jesus. Or at least they're fans of who they imagine Jesus to be. But they are actually enemies of the kingdom of God. That sounds strange, I know, but it is true. Because they wanted Jesus to not be the kind of king that he was destined to be. And they wanted him to rule over a kingdom that was not the kingdom of God. When Jesus is finally arrested and hauled before Pontius Pilate, who's the representative of the Roman emperor in Jerusalem, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, quote, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he says it again, my kingdom is not from this world. What are the kingdoms of this world? What are the centers of power and influence in this world? What are the realms that seek to rule and to control this world. Well, there are lots of them. Maybe at the top of the heap we would list politics. In this recent presidential campaign, I hate to allude to it, but $1 billion was spent to determine who would have their hands on the levers of power in this country. That kingdom is certainly not the kingdom of God. Jesus did not campaign to be a president. He had another kingdom in mind. Business, large and small, buying and selling, building and accumulating wealth, that's another kind of kingdom. Some of you read Tom Wolfe's 1987 novel, Bonfire of the Vanities. It's a fascinating book, probably the, I think it's the greatest novel of the 1980s, about the 1980s. It's about racism in New York City. It's about greed. And the protagonist of this novel, Sherman McCoy, is a young investment banker. He's got a 14-room apartment in Manhattan. He's part of a coterie of Wall Street movers and shakers who call themselves masters of the universe. Wealth and power and control. That's not the kingdom of God either. There are, of course, a thousand and one kingdoms that are not the kingdom of God. Yes, even building a bigger and better church 
or ministry can be a kingdom of this world if it is done from personal pride or personal ambition. We need to be very careful about the divide between the things of this world and the things of the kingdom of God. Listen to what John says. This is in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. John speaking. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James 4.4 draws the distinction just as sharply Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Paul says in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's the difference between the kingdom of God and any other kingdom that we might see around us? Well, the kingdom of God... In the kingdom of God, it is God who calls the shots. In the kingdom of God, everything serves God's purpose and God's glory. And the kingdom of God will abide forever. There are other kingdoms in this world. And in those kingdoms, someone else calls the shots. And the things are managed in that kingdom in such a way as to serve them or to serve their purpose or their glory. We live in this world, but we do not, but we are not of this world. John says that these kingdoms of the world are rooted in the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. An alternate reading, by the way, for that pride of life phrase is, um, Pride of possessions. If our ultimate goals and our highest plans have to do with the stuff of this world, then we are investing in something that is on the way out the door. It's a little like buying government bonds from the Confederate States of America. I mean, those bonds paid interest for a while, but they were soon worthless. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he understood the motivations of their hearts. He saw that they wanted to use him to serve their purposes, to establish their kingdom, not his kingdom. I'm not exactly sure what they had in mind, A kingdom with free health care and free bread, perhaps. Jesus certainly was able to provide those things. But whatever it was that they wanted from Jesus, that wasn't what Jesus was offering. So what is God's word for us this morning? Perhaps that we should examine our hearts and our motivations. Do we want Jesus to serve our purposes and to build our kingdoms? Or do we want to serve Jesus' purposes and build his kingdom? John told us that 
He wrote this gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Without a doubt, Jesus is the way to eternal life. As John tells us, whoever does the will of God abides forever. In Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? It is true we are offered a new life in Christ, but it is a different life from what we had before. We lay down the old life in order to take up the new life. And there is no compromise between the two lives and the two kingdoms. In John 12, 25, Jesus puts the matter even more radically. He says, this is Jesus speaking, whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This morning, we come to the Lord's table, a sacrament, which both looks backwards and forwards. It looks backwards to when Jesus laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have new life in Christ. The death of Christ opens for us the gates to life And it also looks forward to the fellowship and to the feasting that we will enjoy in the coming kingdom of God. This meal that we will share together in a few moments is a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice in the past. And it is an anticipation of eternal life in the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, I invite you to place your faith and trust in Him. I invite you to publicly profess your faith in Jesus. I invite you to find yourself grounded in a congregation where you will be cared for and nurtured in your faith life. And I invite you to share in this sacrament as a sign of your salvation, as a proclamation to the world of Jesus' saving sacrifice, and as a foretaste of the sweetness of the kingdom of God. May we this morning receive Jesus as our king, receive him on his own terms so that we might find our place in his kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you for the riches of your provision. Thank you for your generosity and your hospitality. We thank you that you are a welcoming, compassionate God. We thank you for your invitation to take part in your kingdom. And we thank you for the little glimpses that we have into your kingdom. We pray that we might live into those glimpses more and more fully with each passing day. We thank you for the word of the Apostle John and for his gospel and for this story of the feeding of the 5,000. We thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we will share. We thank you that it was created to be a sign and a seal for our faith, for our salvation. 
We pray that as we come to the table this morning that we might come in full faith and in assurance and that we might receive those humble elements truly as the body and blood of Christ. We ask all of these favors in the name of Jesus. Amen.